Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge, the common bridge where we discuss in a fiercely nonpartisan way the issues of the day and hopefully trying to forge a little compromise or at least middle ground, try to bring the heat down from these polar extremes. And of course, the economy affects everybody and we hear lots of headlines and lots of fear tactics. And today we've got a couple of experts returning to talk about the economy. We have Carrie Killinger and Linda Killinger. Welcome back to The Common Bridge. It's really good to see you both. Thanks, Rich. Great to be back. Thank you. And uh, Carrie was the chairman, the president, and chief executive officer of Washington Mutual, the sixth largest depository bank in the country prior to the financial crisis of 2008. He's lived a lot of business history and has shared with us on prior episodes and in the great book that Carrie and Linda have authored, Nothing is Too Big to Fail. Highly recommend that. Linda was vice chair of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines and chair of its Audit and Finance Committee. She was also a consulting partner in international consulting accounting firm in strategic planning and merger and acquisitions for financial institutions. And we'll have more on their bios today. They run the Carrie and Linda Killinger Foundation. It's an organization that helps local communities thrive by promoting government fiscal responsibility encouraging civil discourse and promoting the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within society. Today, though, what we're going to talk about is the economy and the book that Linda and Carrie authored, Nothing is Too Big to Fail, had a number of prognostications about bubbles being burst, and now we're a little bit downstream from there. So time for a little update, I think. Well, thanks, Rich. And certainly, it's a real pleasure for us to be back uh, back with you. We literally listen to your podcast uh, every time they come out. I think it's uh, one of the best ranging thoughts with, uh, as you say, pretty well down the middle, trying to say, let's uh, come up with policy solutions to a lot of different things that I think makes a lot of sense. So I hope you're gaining more and more traction. I encourage more and more people to, uh, to, uh, to listen to your podcast. They're terrific. I think, you know, the last time we've had a chance to visit with you, we were really uh, kind of midstream about uh, worrying about some things that were going on in policies. And that's frankly the reason why we wrote this book was because we were so concerned about that some of the policies the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government were taking us down were likely to lead to asset bubbles and a potential piercing of those and also to a rapid rise in inflation. Uh, because uh, we saw that the Federal Reserve was instituting loose money policies for over a decade, and then they doubled down on that in COVID, and they increased our money supply something like 35% of the entire amount of money in the history of the United States was put out in a two-year period. And uh, and they accompanied that with uh, keeping interest rates way below the rate of inflation, basically at zero for a number of years, and they went out and started buying a bunch of mortgages and treasury securities themselves, and that bit up the prices. 
of those kinds of securities, causing asset bubbles everywhere. So our biggest concern is that uh, stock prices were getting vulnerable, getting a little high price from what we could see. We saw housing we thought was uh, entering a bubble status and could break at any time. Then we said commercial real estate had a similar uh, trajectory. And, 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 uh, and that some of the more speculative securities, particularly Bitcoin, uh, uh, SPACs became hot for a while. There was uh, the, what, the NFTs? Non, yeah, non-fungible tokens. <laughs> yeah. And so we had a lot of this uh, stuff going on that really was concerning us. And you put that together with the federal government deciding uh, it was going to incur a bunch of multi, uh, uh, you know, billions and billions of, of deficits. And they were kind of honing in on about a half, a, uh, uh, you know, 500 uh, uh, billion or more of deficits per year before COVID. And then when COVID hit, they just went crazy with spending programs. And, uh, and that, uh, that caused our budget deficits to go to record levels. And of course, the federal uh, debt to go to an enormous level. So, just as a preamble, our concerns was that, look, it, bad things happen or tend to happen after you have those kinds of expansive growth in money supply and you have uh, such loose spending by the government. And, uh, and so sure enough, what's happened is uh, it's kind of played out the way we were fearing. One is that the rate of inflation was going to, was going to uh, jump up. And it basically did from less than 2% to, at one point, it was probably close to a 10% annualized rate. And for all of last year, it was about 6.5%, but still way above the 2% target the Fed has. And the other thing is that looked to us like uh, uh, economic growth was going to be mediocre at best. And now uh, we fear, and we'll get into details if you'd like, that uh, that uh, most of the, the drivers of the economy, consumer spending in particular, is about to implode. Uh, the consumer has been stretched to the hill. And if in, in, again, if you think real simplistically what happened, the consumer got flush with cash when the government gave them all that free money for COVID. Right. Uh, it was remarkable to watch. Overnight, consumers went from a normal savings rate of about between five to 10%, it went to 33% of their income because the government gave them all that free money. So naturally what the consumer did is went out and spent a whole bunch of stuff and that helped stabilize the economy. But guess what? The consumer got hooked on that and now they have not only spent all that money. So their savings rates are now down to three and a half percent. We have spent all of our savings Plus, we have uh, finding that uh, wage growth is less than the rate of inflation. So they're continuing to kind of get behind a little bit. And now they're racking up credit card debt to record levels to try to hold in there a little bit. So, so one of the things when you hear all the commentary from the, uh, from the Biden administration and all those trying to push their political agenda saying, God, things are great. Everybody ought to be happy because unemployment is low. But, uh, you know, people are really feeling the pain on this. And weren't there some statistics out yeah, this the, morning on that? Yeah, the latest polls that we've seen show that um, more than 44% of the American public now feels that they're worse off financially than they were before the pandemic. Yeah, and so that's a result, again, uh, you, uh, normally with unemployment so low, the way it is right now, people ought to be pretty happy. But the people on the street know what's really going on. They've seen their credit card debt get get up high. They've seen prices rise much faster than their wages. They're now out of savings. 
And the other thing that uh, kind of held them on for a while was the escalation in their home prices, right? And, uh, and so they were tapping the home equity and lots of good stuff there. Well, that's all rolled over to the negative now. Home prices have declined nationally about 3% in the last, uh, last six months. And everything we see indicates housing is probably going to decline in value by maybe uh, 10% or some number like that uh, nationally over the next year or two. And if that happens, again, I think it'll be another thing that's going to constrain the economic growth quite a bit. It's really interesting and particularly how well researched your book is and how you laid out this case and kind of now we're following that roadmap. And Again, I want to recommend the book, Nothing is Too Big to Fail by Carrie Killinger and Linda Killinger. Been nominated for a Pulitzer. I hope that you get that well-earned Pulitzer. <laughs> if there's a ceremony, I'll be there covering it live. Just let me know the city <laughs> and, and, and the date. And you were doing a lot of what we're trying to get done on the Common Bridge, which is get information out there. My perception of people, and particularly Americans, is that we can be treated like adults and give it information and try to figure out solutions being told now, now everything's okay. And when you make a bunch of new money and then the supply chains are fouled up, well, you've got more dollars chasing fewer goods. That's kind of textbook inflation. Mm -hmm. And now the next part of this sad saga is, well, hey, inflation's down to 5%. Well, it's it's comparing it to already high prices. So yeah, maybe the rate of climb is slowed down, but now we have high prices and they're kind of stuck there. And can the wage growth keep up with that? And clearly not from the data you have. Yes. Is there any chance of the air being released slowly out of the bubble? Some people might call that a soft landing and you see that a lot. Well, obviously, we hope so. <laughs> We'd like to see everything have a soft landing, uh, but that seldom is what happens. Uh, I would just say that it, our analysis right now would indicate that the stock market uh, has corrected some. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down about 7% from its peak, and the uh, NASDAQ is down um, about twice that amount. So they, they've had a decent correction. And and some stock prices uh, like a Tesla or a Meta or uh, some of those higher flyer uh, companies, their stocks are down about 50%. And we have seen uh, things like Bitcoin down two thirds in value. So some of the bubbles are being let out a little bit uh, more slowly. Uh, and, and I think that uh, we still think that stocks are probably uh, value or currently valued about 50, oh, I'd say about 20% above normal range of where they would be. So it'd be very easy to see a 20% or more uh, correction in the stock market here. Uh, There's also a possibility of a 10 to 20% correction in housing prices yeah. in the next year to year and a half, something like that. And sometimes those corrections go real fast. I think that's the one I'd probably emphasize the most right now. Um, look at what happened with housing. You went through an absolute speculative bubble uh, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, people were staying around home a lot and they said, God, I like more space. So that put demand into it. Interest rates were kept at super low levels uh, uh, at, and made them extraordinarily affordable. And it just kind of became the speculative thing to do. So you had market after market 
uh, was ended up in bidding wars. And, and then you put on top of that, institutional buyers were coming in and buying in many markets, 25% or more of all the houses traded were being done, not to live in, but by, uh, by, by pure investors. So there's a pure speculative bubble going on. Then when interest rates started going up, uh, we have a, a rough rule of thumb that affordability of housing, every 10% change or 1% change in interest rates leads to about a 10% change in how much of a house you can buy. And when rates are going down, that's terrific. You can buy more and more house uh, with the same payment. But when rates start going up, it becomes a very uh, difficult and limiting kind of thing. So uh, mortgage interest rates have increased roughly 3% in the past year and a half. And, and that would normally translate to housing prices coming down about 10 to 20% because of the affordability thing. And that has not happened yet. As I said, it's down about 3% so far. But all the evidence suggests to us that in many, many markets, we're going to see more than a 10% uh, correction uh, as things start to stabilize again. And I hope that bubble kind of gets pierced or uh, in a orderly and uh, deflates uh, <laughs> nicely, but you never know. Mm. And uh, uh, that's the one that affects almost everybody in the country. Because uh, again, if you, housing prices start falling for whatever reason, it has a compounding effect through the economy. As people lose confidence, they want to spend less and less, their home equity you know, they can't draw equity out of their homes anymore to pay for yeah. some of their purchases. And as you know, when you start into that negative uh, price spiral, it can it can be pretty severe, like it was in the 2000, uh, 2008 uh, Great Recession. Yeah. Well, well, both of those sectors, both real estate and stock markets, public stock markets, are sensitive to interest rates. But I think as we go beneath the surface, there's a couple of other things. So in the stock market, one of the things that drove some of the investment in stocks is that there were no returns available in credits. Yeah. When interest rates were so low, it's, you know, why buy a bond at 1%? You could buy a, a dividend paying stock that was paying 3 4 5%. And that made a better investment. Well, now... When you look at some of the most safe credit issues right now, you're getting 4, 4.8%. Someone's going to look at that and go, you know what? I'll take the 4.8%. That's less money now going into the stock market. And with the housing market, and I don't know what the statistics are on this, but in the housing crisis of 2008 and beyond, there were so many adjustable rate mortgages resetting and people were forced out of their homes because they couldn't afford the new interest rate. So my understanding is we have more fixed rate mortgages out there. So people, if they are able to stay put, they can just live with that old mortgage rate. So how this plays out, I think to your point, the speculators, people buying for investment are going to say, well, I can't get that big outsized return buying residential real estate. So I think I'll pull the investment that starts changing the dynamic of that market. And I totally agree. And that's that's why I'm not saying housing bubble has to burst. It may well deflate long over a period of years and not be anywhere near as severe as what it was in uh, 2008 and 2009. Uh, we don't have a lot of adjustable rate mortgages, so that's not going to be as much of an issue. But uh, I would argue that even in the last recession, the biggest problem uh, was not those adjustable rate mortgages, that may have helped get things started. But what really happened is when housing prices fell, for whatever reason, they fell 30% in some markets, 
every type of mortgage, including every fixed rate mortgage, became risky because uh, the people's equity got wiped out overnight. And once your neighborhood starts declining in value and your house goes down and you have to get out for whatever reason and sell, then that brings everybody else's down. And it just kind of cascades down for a while. So, I, I, again, I don't think it's as severe by any means as what it was then, but the risk of a 10% or more pullback nationally, I think, I think it's very, very possible. I would concur. And similarly, in the stock markets, the S&P is still trading at a multiple above historical norms that I think there is room for that to come down. I met with some economists earlier in the week or was in meetings where they were presenting better phrased. And they were saying, well, you know, the S&P maybe 4250 at the end of the year. In other words, pretty flat from where we are at this point. And that all affects, obviously, capital flows. Mm-hmm. One theory that I have, and it's a personal theory, is that while we may have had a whole generation now of business people who thought zero interest rate programs were normal, those <laughs> of us that maybe started our career a little bit earlier, we thought, well, we always have to factor in the cost of money. And many people I know that run business enterprises, when they do their forecast, they factor in a cost of money and they look at the zero interest rate. That was just upside to the model. And, you know, maybe we're better equipped for interest rate increases than anybody forecasted. Have you got a view on that? Well, a couple of points I want to make before I forgot on that point. You know, with, with interest rates, uh, first, again, they have gone through quite an increase in the last uh, last year or two as the Fed uh, no, changes, uh, changes policies. One of the thoughts I wanted to complete first on the housing front is, uh, and you mentioned back, you know, remembering way back when, back in the mid-80s, uh, these were periods where interest rates were double-digit on your mortgages, and uh, the affordability of homes became very difficult because of very, very high interest rates, right? But home prices were still fairly low. But the affordability index that factors in those two has now, today, is now back to the level it was then, which is the worst affordability that we've had in uh, in, in decades. But this time, interest rates are not in high double digit. Interest rates are, are relative, still relatively low and the problem is housing prices have jumped up so high that that affordability is is is, is as bad as it's been. And, and that's another factor I just want to close out of why housing could easily go through a correction, because it's just not a, it's affordable to the least number of people today at, at, as it was uh, in, since, in, in, since the, in the early 1980s. In the 1980s. So anyway, I just want to complete that thought. <laughs> well, look, I think that's a great historical parallel because in the 1980s, when mortgage rates were so high and the affordability was out of reach, ultimately the interest rates came down to make it affordable again. But now we're talking about the value of the asset itself being too high, which means <laughs> that the affordability is going to come out of that homeowner and the resale market is going to feel that. And in spot checks I've done around, I've noticed now that many price decreases, homes staying on the market longer. And when you look back at the sales history, you see somebody bought the house in 2021 or even 2022 and attempted to list it for a fancy profit. And now they're backing down. And to me, that's just a sign that there's a speculator in there. Now, what would be the good news in this for a 
conservative consumer, financially conservative consumer, I'm not talking about political ideology here, that husbanded their resources, saved their money, have got a reasonable amount of debt for their income, wouldn't some of these lower prices benefit them? Yeah, look, and I think the likely scenario we'll see moving forward is that we will keep interest rates are, are going to be uh, probably for the 10-year treasury, not too far off from where it is today. It may go up a little bit, but it's going to start to stabilize. And short-term interest rates, as you know, have come up quite a bit. And you are going to see for people that want to be conservative, they have better alternatives now. You can put money into uh, treasury bonds or treasury uh, instruments. You can put them into corporate bonds. You can put them into uh, CDs at a local bank or whatever it might be. And that's a better alternative. And uh, and again, I think on the stock market front, I think, yes, it's going to likely have a, a continued correction at some point. But we're all going to keep getting excellent opportunities to buy uh, good dividend paying stocks and and have a certain amount there. I don't think we're all going to go out and speculate as much as we did in some of these uh, crazy instruments that was going on a couple of years ago. But I think I think you can afford to be fairly conservative. I still think it's not a great time to put a lot of risk on the table. Uh, again, there'll be other points in the cycle when when something gets washed out in price and it's just a a screaming buy is a great time to take on more risk. Right now, I'd still recommend to most people to be conservative, diversified, kind of stay the course. Don't worry about the stock market moving every day. <laughs> Don't overextend yourself in paying a peak price for real estate and then uh, or for, for a house more than you can afford, hoping that it's just going to keep rising in value because I think that play is uh, is going to be much more difficult. So for most people, I think uh, just good, uh, fairly conservative, diversified investment portfolios make sense. Uh, not a great time to take on risk with lots of debt, in my opinion. And I would not overplay uh, uh, home, homes and buy more homes than you need and do it just from a pure investment side. Yeah, great. I Linda, you, you, go ahead, Linda. You were, I was going to ask you because you were the, uh, I know the, statistical backbone of this great work. Uh, <laughs> nothing's too big to fail. And did you sit back in your chair at all over the last few months and go, aha, I told you so, or uh, we were a little off on that one. What what kind of impressions have you had now after the publication of the book? Again, leading up to Pulitzer Prize nomination. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> now, the thing I worried about the most is it, what happens to um, the middle class in this country. And that was my major concern on the first book, and it continues to be my concern. Uh, during, this, during the pandemic and what's gone on in the last few years, the top 10% did very, very well. They increased their wealth substantially. The bottom 10% actually increased a little bit because there's a lot more government a government program to help people out in that area. So they did they did pretty good. They became they had more net worth coming out of this. Uh, but the the thing I'm concerned about is the uh, in the middle class, 80% of America who uh, lost uh, wealth during the last few years. Uh, and they're the ones that will be facing uh, you know Homes that are lowering in price, uh, they'll be facing, you know, they're, they're you know, maxing out credit cards, and that's very mm -hmm. expensive debt. So, and and you know, 
what's happened in other areas. There's going to be more layoffs this year. So my concern is still the middle class, how employment is going to roll out for the rest of the next couple of years. And what it with that will make the middle class more fragile. Indeed, it's a risk, and we don't have enough retraining to get people into jobs that can pay a better living wage. And if people can't sell their house because of the downdraft in home prices, they're going to be stuck. I was just reading today about some of the small towns that people moved to when they could telecommute. And now that it's back to the office, they've got to sell those and leaving a wake of empty homes behind them. Yeah. And I think about all the middle class jobs that go with you know things from day to day life, you know, grocery stores and other places that consumers spend. That's really been interesting. We've talked to a lot of CEOs and uh, but three, four months ago, they were all complaining about no one wants to come back to work. We can't find people who want to work. Everybody wants to work at home. And they were ha- finding a hard time uh, hiring enough people. And there's been a real change. Now CEOs are saying things are finally settling down. More people want to work. Uh, more people need the money. So they're, um, And then they're afraid of layoffs. So there's been a better... Um, uh, viewpoint about getting people back to work. I think one of the things the government uh, did not realize when they did all the co- uh, COVID stimulus is that that would be part of the cause of labor participation rates falling dramatically in the country. Yeah, the, people became so accustomed to the uh, to the checks and the government programs and uh, and and probably on their personal, they did more soul searching of work-life balance when they started spending more time at home and and mm-hmm. when they saw uh, uh, saw the commuting uh, uh, not being as required as it used to be. And the net result is that the participation rate in the labor force fell from about 67% to only 62%. And that's one of the reasons why the unemployment rate's so low right now. There's just not a, too many people that, uh, that want to work. Uh, I will put out the warning that that worm seems to have turned uh, a month or two ago, mm-hmm. and businesses now feel they are back into a control position. So they're more and more demanding employees come into the office a certain amount of time. They now feel uh, it's easier to hire people than what it was. Many larger corporations are actually doing fairly significant layoffs uh, right now. So uh, at least the people we have uh, chatted with have said they now feel that the upper hand on that negotiation has shifted from being in the employee's hands over to the employer's hands. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. One of the other side benefits, I I think it's a good thing for the economy long run, uh, but as this happens, it's also fueled a dramatic growth in small businesses. And so our, our new business formation rates are actually at very high levels. And part of that is that people, uh, may have decided that, yeah, I really don't want to work for this large company where I have to commute into the office and do this and this. Maybe I can open up my own shop or do something there. So a uh, small business formation in our country is at a very high level, which I, I think is a good thing long term. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I'm certainly in favor of that. And it's uh, difficult sometimes just to make it on a wage if a person's talented and wants to take the risk. There's no unemployment for people that fail in a business. 
So people tend to work real hard. I know that I've faced a few nights with payroll coming up and wondering how I was going to get there. So that that's reality. But, and, you know, we talked about the, the government stimulus and how people reacted. I hear very, very few people complaining, saying, hey, they shouldn't have spent all that money. And I was listening to another podcast with a gentleman that was an expert about the federal deficit. He's very concerned. And he said that the spending in 2020 thought was good spending, although it led to trillions of dollars of debt at the federal level, but did not like the spending of 2022, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, under the theory that it was just too much debt. It was going to crowd out private investment. How concerned do we need to be about the deficit and the federal debt? Well, I think we have to be very concerned about it. Uh, At the end of the day, the capital markets can discipline us more than Congress or or regular politics. Look, if we wake up one Monday morning and the the, uh, capital markets don't roll over all of our debt and say, yeah, you have free access to it, or if they demand huge increases in interest rates because they think we're a credit risk, that is a a very... uh, uh, hard discipline uh, uh, tool. And I think uh, $31.5 trillion of, of debt, given the size of our GDP, we are now up to a higher level than what we were in World War II. when that was a very short-term expenditure just to support the, uh, to pay that, pay that war off. We're now stuck into this thing. And I think that whole crowding out is, is for real. I think that we are at the limits. Uh, I don't want to get into uh, you know exactly how you get there, but I just think that we have we've got to be thoughtful and somehow get the annual budget deficits down into uh, about the uh, five hundred billion dollar range plus or minus. I think we can live through those things, but I think this year after year of a trillion dollars of uh, deficits is going to be a real problem for us if we uh, in and I think. It, it appears to me anyway, politically, we're getting pretty close to uh, to that realization and that we'll start to see less uh, less uh, one way movement of just raising that uh, uh, the amount of those deficits every year. Now, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But look, at it, it's always easier for a politician to spend than to not. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. that's the way our congressional process goes and getting all the money allocated to their pet projects and all the things that has to go on and and on the other side always trying to always be there how do i get as many tax cuts as i can and the like and i understand all those arguments i just want to come together and somehow get that at end deficit down to about 500 billion or less and i think we'll be fine you know one of the things <laughs> that has concerned us is that over the past few years uh, ever since the financial crisis the, the the federal reserve has been in many ways politicized uh, because there is so much pressure in the last few years to keep interest rates low. It's good for politicians. People feel happy because they can buy everything on a low interest rate, and it really boosts the economy. But well, we got another presidential election in two years, and I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to try to lower interest rates. I think Congress and the president will probably, like they have in the past, put pressure on the Federal Reserve to continue to, well, to try to start reducing interest rates lower so the economy will perk up. 
um, that might be a short-term solution and great for an election if you want to get elected. Uh, but in a long-term basis, that's not not healthy. Uh, the way that the Federal Reserve has been uh, over the last two decades, keep keeping interest rates too low for too long. So if people feel too good about buying things and everything, then you get all the asset bubbles building up and, and prices uh, pushing prices higher and higher. And then when they finally realize that it's it's too much, too late, then they dramatically reduce, dramatically raise the rates too high, too fast. And that has, you know, that causes a hyperinflation. I, I think the key on that, Rich, is going to be if we talk in a year from now, sometime in next year, look, at I think the Fed has likelihood to have a resolve for the next few months. And I think it's going to stick to trying to get the inflation rate down to 2% or below. I think inflation is going to come down, but I don't think they have rates high enough or have done enough at all to get it down to 2%. Yeah. So it's probably still going to be above that. Now, when we get into a political year and the like, it, it, as Linda said, every politician is going to be calling, they're going to be yelling at the Fed, drop interest rates. And the Fed has become more and more politicized. And I think it's very possible that they will kind of succumb to uh, to lowering rates uh, probably prematurely before yes. inflation's actually come down. And that's going to be the big thing we're going to want to watch the rest of this year into next year. Well, it seems like everything our political system touches gets messed up in some way versus the independence of the Federal Reserve, regardless of what one's view about the Federal Reserve itself is at least let it be independent, independent and guide the economy. Again, from my point of view, introducing cost of money back into the equation is going to hurt for a while. I think there's steps to mm -hmm. mitigate that pain. As Linda, you referred to programs for people in the lower rungs of the economic scale, but I think ultimately it's necessary medicine. And then when we look at the debt and the deficit, it just makes no sense to me at all. Like we're not going to lift the debt ceiling on money we've already spent and we're going to hold <laughs> the economy and the country and the world financial system hostage until we get, and I'm still waiting for the blank to be filled in about, okay, what is it that we get? Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that we've talked about in the book that, that is still even more true now is how our Federal Reserve policies are pretty much copied by the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. If we raise interest rates, the rest of the world raises interest rates and vice versa. And so now you have an even more fragile economy in the European countries and a completely not understandable uh, what's going on in China. Uh, they're even more fragile. Uh, and then with the, the Ukraine war, and we don't know how that's going to scale up. But if all of the Europeans and uh, our country and others in this time have to put even more money, and I support Ukraine a whole lot, don't get me wrong, but that's another thing that makes it dangerous uh, to be in the position that we're in. You know, Linda, you mentioned China, and that's a topic that we talked about in our prior podcast, prior episodes of the Common Bridge, and talked about overbuilding of assets, of residential and such. And now we learn that China's population has shrunk by some 850,000 people. There's not very many U.S. cities of that size. Mm -hmm. So 
how's China doing and where are the risks in the Chinese part of this? Well, uh, I've just uh, look at China is going through a very difficult economic period uh, uh, right now, led by those problems in real estate. As we mentioned, as you said in our book, there were somewhere between 50 and 60 million unoccupied new housing units in China. People couldn't afford them. They were just built in order to, uh, uh, to keep the economy vibrant or keep it going, keep jobs going. And the Chinese government also manipulates prices. So they basically cause prices to go up every year like this, regardless of supply and demand. And it was the primary requirement. If you had a retirement plan, you had to put it into housing. So in the last few years, uh, about, as I recall, 75 or 80 percent of all housing in China was being uh, built for people buying their second, third and fourth house. It wasn't for their primary housing. So it became kind of an investment tool for their retirement plan Mm -hmm. with prices they thought were going to go up forever, despite the uh, people not able to afford those apartments and the like. So anyway, that has all turned the other way now. Uh, In the last several months, uh, prices across China and real estate have been plummeting. Uh, There have been uh, some very high profile companies that normally should have would have been bankrupt if it was in the United States that the Chinese government has had to come in and rescue and just try to try to uh, keep it. Uh, stable. And and then they went through the lockdown for COVID, which really screwed up their manufacturing base for a while. Uh, and now that they've let that back up, uh, that in conjunction with a declining population, uh, they're simply going to have very low GDP growth for quite some time. And they could have a, they have a, you know, that speculative real estate bubble is, is in the process of uh, deflating. We'll just have to find out how uh, how how enormous it is. So I, I think um, if I'm looking at the hot, you know, the risks around the world, China is right up there, in addition to worrying about Ukraine and Russia and how that uh, plays out. And uh, and I think just other geopolitical, I think the uh, um, in general, Asia is going to continue to do better than uh, Europe. I think Europe's in for a very long, difficult period of low population, low productivity, low uh, economic gains for uh, quite some time. Asia will be better off. Many feel that uh, I've been reading is that the next decade will be more the decade of India than it will of China, that China has kind of overplayed its hand and maybe under a lot of pressure, and that if they do it right, India will have population growth. wind at their sails a little bit for their economy and growth. And if they can pull off productivity and and do all the things you have to do to take yourself from a third world country to a, to a more modern one, uh, that may well be the economic powerhouse uh, more of the future than even what China was. And China for- has a much higher, almost twice as, twice as bad as the United States of uh, debt, debt to GDP. And, and the one thing that we've noticed in in traveling and interviewing people through China, is that there are two Chinas. They are the very, very large cities that are doing much better in their financial centers, and where people have had no problem buying the apartments and 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 growing wealth. Uh, but there's a lot of people in the rural area and rural cities where it just hasn't worked out as well, and that's where a lot of the empty units are in the rural areas. So they really have a kind of a two China problem. It'll be interesting to see how they unwrap that. Well, they also have to 
look at they have spent uh, you know hundreds of billions of dollars on uneconomic projects around the world too. They have to work through. Yes, uh, we've been on our travels, been through a lot of uh, seaports that China built that are basically empty. You know, there might be one ship and an entire thing. And and uh, is that in Australia, North America, South America? Where what we've seen that all over. We we saw yeah. it in South America, Asia. We saw it in, in many places in uh, Northern Africa and in Southern Europe. Yeah, I, uh, I, where I, where the countries uh, that needed more help went to China to borrow money to build infrastructure. Well, if they default on those loans, then China can take over. That infrastructure will be very interesting. I, I think the ones most most of risk will be throughout some of the Asia countries and on into Africa. Yeah, if the old Silk Road that uh, you know that they it, it was a very interesting strategy on China's part. Instead of spending so much money on military, they said, you know, we can kind of help basically conquer the world. It's a lot more economic. Let's take those monies we otherwise would have spent on military and put them into uh, development projects in countries that have no way to ever pay him back. Well, that basically g- gives them control of that that country in a lot of respects. And so they've done uh, uh, billions and billions and billions and billions in, in that area. Now, those are starting to come home to roost because several of those countries literally are in uh, very deep uh, difficulty now. So it, the China's going to have to decide, do they enforce their covenants and basically take over those facilities or did they somehow do a workout with them? But it, it, it's, it's, it's not going to be, it was another fuel of growth for them that was positive. Now it's going to be a negative. And by the way, when they were doing all that, both that and the real estate, they didn't do it with equity as we know it. They basically went out and borrowed to the hilt. So the Chinese and the Chinese companies, uh, uh, borrowed to uh, uh, to kind of record levels on, uh, on a world level to pay for all this. And again, as you know, whenever you have leverage going through rapid growth and things kind of go the other way, you're setting yourself up for uh, potential risk there. Yeah, we've had Robert Greenfield from Australia, and he's traveled and done business extensively through Asia and the East. And he talks about how the Chinese have methodically gotten mines and control of strategic metals and things yeah. and ports, but it never occurred to me until this podcast that they've got to be economically viable. Doesn't this kind of make a case for China to maybe want to modernize and open up its economy again? It seems like some foreign investment from outside of China would do a world of good for them versus other things you hear about China, like let's go start an expensive war against Taiwan. You're right, absolutely, from an economic standpoint. I can't comment what their thoughts are from a political or national expansion uh, 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 and you know war war kind of kind of thinking. But China has to get their economy fully opened. They they're still a great manufacturing center. We in the U.S. want to buy all their stuff because it's cheap and uh, and uh, we have a big demand for it. And uh, and I think that they will be. Uh, you know, now that they've opened up for COVID, that's going to be a, a, a area of major focus for them. I think, you know, from a pure economic standpoint, I think it's it would be really foolish to see them do something with Taiwan. So if they do something like with the Taiwan or they do more on the military front, that's not coming out of economic self-interest from what I can see. That's really out of uh, uh, some political agenda they feel they need to uh, need to execute. And Obviously, from for the world's standpoint, I think we all hope that uh, that they think very carefully about that. 
Indeed. I know they built some amazing aircraft carriers and supplied a fairly big military. Evidently some big balloons. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, some balloons and uh, amazing. I recorded a conversation with uh, Justin Higgins, who's the host of Politics and Media 101, just yesterday recorded him. And we were talking about the balloons and what the story was at the time was that there was one balloon in recent days of it. Oh, there were three during the Trump administration. Well, that story got reversed. No, there weren't any. Well, then an unnamed source at the Department of Defense said, well, there might have been some kind of maybe over the border, which, of course, got blown up by that part (laughs) of the media machine as, uh, you know, lots of balloons under Trump. It's insane the way our political polarization and our so-called news system has blown that up around partisan lines. Clearly, there was a Chinese spy balloon over the United States of America. The president of the United States, commander in chief, told the Air Force to go take care of it. They did. Seems like a pretty good thing. But some people can't can't leave well enough alone. It makes me a little crazy. Wow, you can politicize anything now. Indeed. This has been a great conversation. In uh, prior conversations, we talked about fine art and collectibles that there really isn't a safe spot in the economy today or a very reliable store of value. If you were advising a young family starting out or perhaps a mid-career professional or even indeed somebody leading up to or in retirement, what kind of basic economic message might you give to people in those circumstances? Well, I think I'd get back to the basics of saying, look, if you're a 20 or 30 something, you've got to be investing for a 50 or 60 year time horizon. Focus on that long term and uh, and don't worry about some of these short term fluctuations. Uh, uh, I, I think over the long run, you're always better to have more of your retirement plans or any of your investable funds into equity-oriented vehicles. Uh, stocks are usually the best way to play that. Uh, homes, over the long run, have, 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 uh, have been a good way. Something that can appreciate along with inflation. And don't always keep your money just in fixed-income safe vehicles. Those become more and more appropriate as you get older. Uh, the other thing, though, you've got to do is don't try to time the market. Don't think you're smart enough to buy at the low and sell at the high or get caught up in the fads of buying this stock or that stock that somebody's recommending and the like. So I think diversified portfolios that have an emphasis on equity kind of vehicles. Um, in today's world, I uh, also encourage people to not just be in U.S. equities. There's uh, good programs to allocate out a certain amount in uh, around the world because sometimes some markets are better than the others. And, uh, and, uh, and don't change those very often. Let them compound over the years and uh, and try not to put yourself in a position where you need to uh, tap those funds during that long period. Right there is, is the key. And I'm talking about young people starting out the way my wife and I did, where we were at zero. And if you're 20-something and you're healthy and maybe you've developed some marketable skills, is the watchword still live below your income? Yes. So that you can start to accrue some cash, even though it might lose spending power, 
so that then you can invest it. Take advantage of 401ks or any savings programs that your employer might have available. Mm-hmm. Put off purchases. Think about where your money's going. If you're spending for conveniences and a lot of services, maybe pull back on that. The other thing, Rich, that I think is really important in every era, in every financial crisis, that's kind of the same thing occurs. You get a lot of unregulated, lots of, you know, unregulated instruments that might increase really fast, like the uh, uh, bitcoins and uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the fungible tokens and uh, SPACs that, that, you know, it's sort of like almost get rich quick schemes. And they're nothing more than the tulip bulb uh, kind of investments. And it's, it's sometimes hard. To, we, we know so many people in the categories that you describe, people just starting out in their 20s and 30s or even midlife, even people starting to plan for retirement, where they get so enamored with the cryptocurrency and everything. A lot of those instruments uh, were, are unregulated. When they start to unwind, it's nearly impossible. Investors don't know who the people are that they run some of those organizations. And they, they get into trouble and they, they cr- like the, the latest one, FTX, they, they crash fast and people can't get their money back. Unless you got a lot of extra money to, to, uh, to, to gamble on that. Right. And, and I think we talked earlier in, in the episode about the business formation. That is a form of investment. And mm-hmm. if you're building business, yes. you're building equity in that business and hopefully it's providing an income. So if you're starting out and you don't have a big savings, now's the time to try to live frugally, maximize your earnings, put work in, and try to create a little bit of a portfolio. And let's say you've done that right, and now you're looking at retirement and you're saying, gosh, we're not getting enough return out of the S&P 500. In fact, it went negative last year. What kind of advice would you give somebody, let's say 55 plus, that is either you know looking at retirement or in retirement? Well, the thing I'd keep in mind is if you're 55, even at 55 and certainly in plus, but you, you, you need to be thinking about 30-year time horizons or, or more. I mean, so it, it, I don't, you know, one time when you were 55, you figured, well, at best, I only need to worry about 10 years. Now you need to worry about, uh, but maybe a longer period if uh, healthcare care can improve and we can all uh, live healthy lives and the like. Uh, but saying that, I think the... Uh, if I was at 55, I would still have a majority of my portfolio in conservative equities, um, common stocks, probably 60 or 70 percent. And in that I probably would have 30 uh, percent in, in uh, something like high quality corporate bonds and maybe 20 percent in uh, more liquid, uh, uh, lower returning, but safe safe kind of things. And over the long run, those kinds of weighting on portfolios will produce excellent results. The, the, the one thing that really struck me the other day, I was doing some uh, long-term studies and it, and, it, and it showed that over the long run, it didn't matter very much if you bought at the top of the stock market or at the bottom, that 10 years out, the returns were basically within a percent or two. And so people that are always worrying about just finding the low time to buy or the high time to sell, no, the smart thing is own equities over long periods of time or have the exposure, but never 
force yourself into selling at bad times and don't get caught up in speculative crazes at the other time. Let that compound because uh, corporate earnings over a long period of time simply grow faster than the rate of inflation. And if you have an instrument tied to that, you're going to do really well. And so that's why when I'm at 55, I want to worry about 30 years. If, if I'm 75 and I may be worrying more about 10 years, then by that period, you probably want to have uh, the majority of your assets in, uh, in fixed income or things that are uh, uh, much less risky. And your debt under control, uh, manageable if it exists at all. And cut up the credit cards. Indeed. Uh-huh. Or pay them off every month. Actually, if you want the best credit card, I'm an advertisement for uh, uh, for <laughs> Amazon. Amazon I love buying, you know, I do a lot of stuff there, but their credit card is a 5% cash back on uh, every purchase I make on Amazon. And of course, we pay it off every month. But you know, what a great transaction of getting 5% off on something. And uh, as long as you're uh, disciplined enough to, to never let that credit card balance accrue to an interest. <laughs> well, if those are in a position to do that, I highly recommend that they, they look into <laughs> that. As we move to our close, is there anything that we didn't cover today that we should have talked about? Any policy items in particular or uh, any watch force? Yeah, I think, look, at I think you're, we're going to be into quite a political season for uh, both the getting through the state of the state of the union uh, short term and then on through uh, the presidential elections. And you're going to hear politicians either go to the extremes of glass half full or half empty and the like. Uh, people need to put that on the back burner and just look at what's going to the high likelihood is that the economic growth uh, over the next two years is going to be very anemic at best. And some will play it up that we're in a recession. If you want to be a negative on one party or if you're on the other, it's saying, no, no, we're into growth. Well, plus or minus zero, it isn't going to matter. You know, it's going to be pretty close. Also, expect the unemployment rate to rise. It's at uh, too low a level right now to sustain long-term normalcy in the economy. So unemployment is going to rise. Inflation is going to come back down. But don't think it's a big victory if it comes down, if it came down from 10 percent and gets stuck at 5 percent, which it might. You know, if it stays at four or five, that's still a problem. The Fed's going to have to tighten a lot more. But hopefully the Fed will find a way to get it down to 2 percent kind of range. And if they do that, God bless them and and we'll all be uh, be pretty happy. But the next couple of years, economic wise, is going to be a very slow growth period for this country. There are still lots of risks. And I wouldn't be at all surprised around corrections in housing prices, the stock market and the like. Still a good time to stay as much out of debt as you can. As you said, live within your means. Try to be conservative on this that front and just don't take a lot of unnecessary risk. Linda, any final comments for our audience? No, I think you've covered everything. Well, we've been talking today with Carrie Killinger and Linda Killinger. They are the co-authors of the Pulitzer-nominated book, Nothing is Too Big to Fail. It is a mighty read, but I'd recommend it. I've read the book cover to cover, probably need to go back and read it again. It is the antithesis of the soundbite world that a lot of us live in, but it's well worth it. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be policy solutions with the proviso that we think about it and work together to solve it. And with that, this is your host, Rich Helpy, with our guests, Carrie Killinger and Linda Killinger, signing off on The Common Bridge.
Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.